Well, good morning, church family, members of Fox Hill Road Baptist Church. I, I greet you on this Sunday morning, April 19th, in case you've lost track of time. This is Sunday morning, and, and so this is the day that we uh, gather together in, in this limited capacity to, uh, to, to seek in and be encouraged by God's Word um, and so I'm glad that you're, you're here, church family. I do. I miss you all, and I look forward to being able to be with you again. Um, and, and I'm thankful for this now that we have this. Uh, as we begin, we're going to do things a little differently this morning uh, in terms of order. And so we're going to start with a reading of Scripture in our prayer. And so we're going to start with a reading from Psalm 112. And so if you have your Bibles, hopefully you have them. Um, Psalm 112 is where I'm going to read first, uh, and then I'm going to pray for us. So Psalm 112, I'm going to read the whole psalm here at the outset. Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. That's Psalm 112. Let's, let's pray together as we begin this morning. Father, we, as your people, I, as one who has been reconciled to you, as, as your child, Father, I want to, to be wise. We want to be wise. We want our lives to be marked with wisdom. Uh, we want our lives to be marked by your wisdom, wisdom from above. And so we ask Lord, in light of this psalm, that, that you would give us a fear of you, a fear that we learn is the, the starting point of true wisdom. And so I ask that you would give us a, a reverence for you that would lead us in wisdom to seek it from you. Father, I pray that you would, especially in the midst of, of this time of crisis, give us great delight in your commands. Lord, give us a sustained love for and an enjoyment in your word. Lord, how easy it is to fall out of a habit when, when schedules are, and routines are disrupted. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give us self-control and discipline and whatever we need to spend time in your word. So would you do that for us? As your people in, in time of crisis, Lord, we want to just acknowledge that, that you have been so gracious to us. We have been given so much. We are blessed in ways too numerous to count. And so I ask that you would give us thankful hearts. Lord, guard us from discontentment. Give us hearts that recognize, that see your goodness in our lives and in our world and in our circumstances. Lord, while we were still enemies, 
you did not withhold your only precious son from us, but you freely gave him up for us. And so how will you not, we ask ourselves, how will you not with him freely give us all that we need? And so we ask, Lord, that you would continue to, to provide for us. We look to your providence as, as that which meets all that we need. And so we're trusting in you. We ask, Lord, specifically for those who have lost their jobs because of this. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would provide for them. Uh, Lord, I ask as, as, as your people, you would give us opportunities to be generous and gracious. Lord, would you give us opportunities to meet the needs of neighbors and family members and friends? And Lord, when those opportunities arrive, arise, would you help us to, to give generously, to be gracious and generous in the face of needs as they arise? Uh, Lord, ground us in you, I pray. May our hearts be firm, trusting you, even in the midst of, of questions and even in the midst of, of suffering, even in the midst of chaos and uncertainty. Lord, I pray that you'd give us a trust in you, a confidence in you, uh, that we might not be moved but might be firm, that, that the prospect of bad news does not even scare us because we're trusting in you. And so, Lord, we ask for our church family. I, I thank you for the generosity of this body, Lord, Thank you for the ways in which we as a church have continued to, um, to be sustained financially. So thank you for the generosity of your people here at Fox Hill Road Baptist Church. Thank you, Lord. We, we are encouraged that even our, our Annie Armstrong uh, Easter offering, the, our goal was exceeded. And so, Lord, we, we just give you thanks for that. And we want to pray for that, that offering. We pray for our North American missionaries, uh, church planters, and chaplains all, all over um, North America, the U.S., and uh, Canada and Puerto Rico and other places. Lord, we pray for them. Would you give them wisdom to minister during these times? Would you uh, give their ministries effectiveness? Lord, I pray for, for all of these and their families. Uh, would you give them a steadfast, fixed love for Christ in the midst of, of their um, circumstances going through abnormal patterns and processes? So, so we thank you for our, our missionaries and our church planners and our chaplains. And so, Lord, as your people, we, we pray, I pray that you would keep us um, because you are faithful and able to do that. And it's in Christ's name I pray all these things. Amen. Well, so in terms of introduction, uh, this, this is a, a bit of an extended introduction, um, but, but, but this introduction, which would normally have come before the, the Bible reading and prayer, uh, actually leads into the sermon. So, um, just by way of introduction, I do want to remind you, church, um, again, that, that what we're doing here, that, that me standing here in, in an empty sanctuary with, with only one other person here, um, this looking into a phone uh, and streaming it on Facebook, this is not church. I mean, I just want to remind you that this does not, cannot, will not ever replace the church. In fact, I heard someone in an interview this week talk about this, this, this online streaming, this, this virtual church. This is, this is uh, he described it as a crutch. So our, our, our ankle's been injured by this pandemic. We can't meet. And so, so we have a crutch that, that helps us to move along. As However long this lasts, we have a crutch that, that's going to help us limp along. I hope you feel like our church is limping right now uh, because I feel like that. We, we can't do what we're supposed to do. We're, we're hindered. But hopefully, sooner or later, Lord willing, things will get better and we won't need the crutch anymore. 
And so when churches are allowed to gather again, whenever that is, we're no longer going to, to use Facebook Live to stream a, a, a sermon. It's not even a service. This is just a message. We're, we won't use Facebook Live for this. We won't have an online Bible study on Wednesdays. When, when, when things go back to normal, we, we won't do this. This pandemic in the long run is not going not to alter fundamentally the, the way that we do church. I mean, just, just think about church cannot, is not something that, that, that can be captured by, by, a, by a video. Right? If you think that you can do church online, your view of church is really shallow. It, it's, it's, it's as if what is really church can, can be described or explained by, by simply what happens up front by someone speaking or someone playing music. That's, that's not church. And so this will never be normal. I don't want you to fall into thinking that this is normal. If you're watching us, if you've been watching um, and you're not a member of this church, we would be glad for you to, to join us when things go back to normal. But, but if you're a member of another church, our, our time is limited. Um, so I'm glad, I'm thankful that you would, you would consider watching this. I mean, why would you consider watching this? But um, I'm thankful you are. But, but you are not a church member. Um, and, and, and so um, this is not normal. Our time is limited. But if you're a church member, our time's not limited because, Lord willing, we will gather again. The church can't be replaced by digital um, gathering. And so I just want you to know that, and, and this goes back to the fundamental, fundamental identity of the New Testament church. Um, the local church, as I understand it in the New Testament, is, is the assembly, the gathered together people of God. And, and the gathering happens locally. It, it can't happen digitally or remotely. A church can't be a church if it doesn't gather, in my opinion. Which also means, I, I think, further, the New Testament teaches pretty strongly Pretty clearly, I believe it pretty strongly, that the church is one group of people who gather together in one place at one time. I don't think the New Testament church, according to Scripture, should be a group of people who gather in one place even at different times, like multiple services. I don't think that's the intention of the New Testament church. I think having multiple services, even if they are at the same location, gathering at different times goes against the nature of the church. I don't think that a local church, according to the New Testament, should be a group of people who gather at different places at the same time. In other words, I don't think that one church can have multiple campuses. I think that, again, goes against the nature of the church. For one, that one church isn't gathering together. And two, that church is not one people. They may have the same name, but it's not one people. It's people from this location who gather regularly in this location. It's people from this location who gather together regularly in this location. It's people from this location that gather together in that location. It seems more accurate to call those, instead of one church in many locations, many churches in many locations. That's what it seems. The function seems to be that there's multiple churches going on there. And, and, And so I think that would be a more accurate description. It's not one church in many locations. I think that goes against the nature of the New Testament church. And so I say all this, that, that the local church is one group of people gathering in one place at one time. I say all this knowing, well, first of all, I know that lots of people disagree, and I'm not charging other gospel-preaching churches with, with sin, and I'm, I'm not saying that there's sin. I'm, I'm just saying I think that some assumptions regarding the fundamental identity of the local church is, is being um, perverted or distorted when, when you have these um, formations of a local church. Now, a lot more could be said on this, and maybe I will preach a sermon on this at one point, but the reason that I go through all that introduction 
is simply to say that the gathered church, the corporate worship of a local church, the physical coming together of the church is fundamental to the identity of the church, but it's also fundamental to what the church does, namely the, the observance or the practice of the ordinances of the church. And so maybe you see where I'm going with this. This means that as long as we're quarantined, however long this is, um, we won't as a church be practicing either of the ordinances, whether it's the Lord's Supper or whether it's baptism. As long as this quarantine extends because of the nature of the local church, the corporate nature, I don't think that it's the, the right place for the Lord's Supper to be observed as we're scattered or baptism to be observed. So, so as long as this quarantine is, is in effect, I, I won't encourage you to take the Lord's Supper by yourself. I won't tell you to go buy bread and grape juice and, and lead communion with you virtually. I mean, I consider that. Um, I won't do a baptism here on Facebook Live, not because I don't think these things are important, but because I think they are so important. And just hear me say, I miss, I miss our monthly Lord's Supper together. I miss that monthly meal. I'm with you. I long, I look forward to that. That, that encourages my soul as we do it monthly. I, I'm sad, maybe you don't know, but last week we were planning to do several baptisms on Easter Sunday, and I'm, I'm, I'm sad that we didn't do those. We didn't get to do those. However, because these ordinances are given to the local church and are to be observed in the context of the gathered local church, we're going to wait until we're gathered again to do these things. Okay, so I just want you to know that. Maybe I'll preach a sermon one day on the observance of the ordinances, but for now, just know that, that as your pastor, I realize that many of you are missing communion together. You're missing the Lord's Supper. I know that. I, I, I mean, one of the things I've been encouraged about as being the pastor here is seeing how important that first Sunday of the month is to many of you, especially many of you older members. I know that you love the Lord's Supper. It, it, it's special to you. And I'm sad that we are in a situation that we're in where we cannot do that. However, let me encourage you that the significance of that ordinance, specifically the Lord's Supper, the significance of that comes not from the performing of it, but from the reality behind it, the reality of the person and work of Christ, who, let us remember, can never be taken from us. And so don't be overly discouraged at our temporary inability to partake of communion together. Instead, and here's what I would encourage you to do if you're missing communion, instead be reminded of the permanent work of Christ on your behalf. It's the work of Christ that is merely on display in the Lord's Supper. Powerfully on display, yes, but merely on display in the Lord's Supper. And so instead of, instead of longing for the Lord's Supper, although you should long for it, instead of being overly discouraged that we can't do it, Cling to Christ, hope in Christ, find comfort in Christ because he is the, 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 the substance that the Lord's Supper is pointing to and you still have him as long as we are unable to remember him in the supper. And so um, j just a few words uh, by way of introduction. I love you, church family. I care for you. I'm longing for the day when we're able to gather again. Um, and, and so we are praying that it would end soon. But that, that, that leads into the introduction to today's sermon which if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 16. The Gospel of John chapter 16 is where we're going to be. We're going to be, I'm going to read verses 5 uh, through 15 here in a moment. Um, we're going to look at John 16 verses 5 through 15 in a, in a moment. But before we read these verses, I want to tell you, I want to lay out kind of where I'm going today 
um, where, where I'm going today and in the next several weeks, but I also want you to know why we're doing what we're doing today and in the next several weeks. And so the why, why are, why are we going to do this series that I'm, that I'm going to start today? The why is simply this. As, as a pastor, as someone who's charged with being a, a, a shepherd of a particular people, as someone who's supposed to, to feed and pray for and minister to Christians who have united themselves to, to this local church, this whole pandemic has been difficult and challenging for me. It's been difficult in the sense, not, not just because I'm at home a lot more with, with my, my four kids, okay, that is challenging, but, but it's been difficult in the sense that I'm not being able to see you or, or to talk with you in person, uh, to meet you for lunch, uh, to talk with you after Awana's is over in, in the Family Life Center, or to, to talk with you uh, in Sunday school before we start the lesson, or in the hallway before the service starts, or after church in the back. I'm not able to interact with you as I normally do. And, and, and those things that I do, these, these personal relationships the, these, these personal contacts, this, this is part of how I carry out my calling. And it's been particularly difficult because I'm tempted to think because I'm not doing those things, I'm not pastoring in the way that I'm used to, I'm afraid that your faith, the faith of our people, will fail or falter or weaken. And that, that worries me and that concerns me. And so there is a real danger, I think, I don't want to downplay this, this, the reality of this danger, there's a real danger that the quarantine and the longer that, we're, that churches go without meeting, right, there is a real danger of a weakening of faith because the, the local church and the gathering relationships have been given to us to help encourage us and, and strengthen our faith, which is why I'll say keep calling one another, keep interacting with one another, keep, keep checking on one another. And so there's a real danger there. What I was encouraged by, and in fact what I'll continue to be encouraged by, as long as this, this quarantine continues, but even a- after things go back to normal, this is an encouragement to me, and the, the encouragement is simply this, that the overarching reality of the state of God's people in the midst of this pandemic and out of this pandemic, the reality is that the state of God's people is safe and secure. In fact, the Christian is in a better place today, even in light of the quarantine, coronavirus notwithstanding, the Christian is in a better place today than were the original 12 disciples when they walked and talked with Jesus. They're safer and more secure now than they were even then. Or even then, those who saw the resurrected Jesus before he ascended. And so, so you, I can trust, I can be encouraged that you and me as God's people here now are safe. We, we, we experience or enjoy a state of security because, specifically because, of the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Every Christian enjoys the improved state, specifically because of the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so, what we're going to be doing this week, beginning this week and, and into next, next week, maybe three more weeks or four more weeks or five more weeks or, four, or, or more, I don't, I don't know how long specifically, but what we're going to be doing is looking at the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to focus specifically on the New Testament work of the person of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the new covenant work of the Spirit. And we're going to do so because, because I think this is, this is what, what ought to encourage you. This is what ought to encourage me. 
as we think about this context, but, but really just the Christian life in general, the ministry of the Spirit ought to be a great encouragement to us. And so that's what we're going to do. And so this morning, hopefully, we're, we're going to uh, be encouraged by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as we see Jesus describe it here in John chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles, uh, hopefully you've turned there to John chapter 16. I'm going to read Uh, It's actually verse 4b, so the second half of verse 4, in all the way through verse 15. So John chapter 16, verse 4b through 15. You can follow along as I read. Jesus says to his disciples, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are, that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let me pray for us as we we begin this, looking at this passage. Father, I thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Thank you that you sent him. Thank you for the work that he has done in our lives, in the lives of your people. Thank you uh, for the ways that he has already worked. We ask that he would continue to be at work in our lives. And even now, we pray, Spirit, that you would grant us faith and trust in the one who died for us and rose again for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as we begin this morning, I wonder how many of you would answer this question. How would you answer this question, specifically as it relates to the ministry of the Spirit? Here's the question. What is the primary purpose of the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry? What is the primary purpose of the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry? Now, there are a lot of potential answers, and a lot of the potential answers would be true if the question was, what are some of the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministries? But that isn't the question. Listen to the question again. What is the primary purpose of the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry? What is his primary purpose? Why was the Holy Spirit given to the first Christians at Pentecost? What was the primary purpose of his ministry throughout the book of Acts? What is his primary purpose for you in your life? What is his primary purpose in the life of of this local church? What is his primary purpose in this world? What is the primary purpose of the Holy Spirit in his new covenant ministry? I'm afraid that many of us wouldn't be able to give a clear answer as to the primary purpose of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and that's okay. That's why we're starting here at John 16 this morning. 
You see, much of, the, much of our thinking, myself included, about the Holy Spirit has to do with activities and functions. But, but, but many of those functions, those activities are, are secondary. They're not primary. For instance, the, the distribution of spiritual gifts, the empowerment for spiritual living, the, the, the growth in sanctification, even new birth. Or, or, or any other non-mentioned activities. All of these are, are ministries and activities of the Spirit, but none of these activities, I think, get to the primary purpose for the Spirit in the new covenant. And so looking at the verses we just read, I want us to focus specifically on verses 12 through 15. And then next week, Lord willing, the plan is, is to back up and go verses 5 through 12. Okay, but this week we're focusing on verses 12 through 15, and there's three points that we're going to walk through as we see in, as, as we look at the ministry of the Spirit here. So first point, we're going to see the primary purpose of the Holy Spirit. So I think, I think his primary purpose is, is listed right there in verse 14. So we're going to start verse 14, the primary purpose of the Spirit. Secondly, we'll, we'll look at the things to come that Jesus talks about in verses 12 and 13. And then finally, thirdly, that we'll, we'll look at the, the, the Father, Son, and Spirit, this, this economy of the Trinity, this Trinitarian relationship that, that we get an insight into in verse 15. Okay, so those are three points. Primary purpose of the Spirit, the things to come, and then the Father, Son, and Spirit. We begin there at verse 14, the primary purpose of the Holy Spirit. So the main idea here, it's really simple. Jesus' point, I think, here in these verses is very basic, but, but this point... It is this point here that ought to shape how we view the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because here, in these verses, Jesus tells us exactly why he is going to send the Spirit. And so at the outset, the big picture, the main idea of these verses, and the primary purpose for Jesus sending the Holy Spirit is right there in verse 14. Verse 14, He will glorify me. He will glorify me. I think that's the primary purpose of the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry. The Spirit's primary task here is Christological. In this sense, the Spirit's primary ministry is Christ-centered ministry. And it's explicitly Christ-centered. His, that is the Spirit's primary task, as Jesus is explaining, was going to be to glorify Christ or to highlight Christ or to magnify Christ or to elevate Christ. Specifically, who he was and what he came to do. The, the Spirit's ministry is to glorify Christ. This was the primary purpose for his coming, and it remains his primary purpose now in the life of his people. And so as we study the person and work of the Spirit today and in weeks to come, we're going to see that the Spirit does not draw attention to himself. In this sense, the Spirit's ministry is self-effacing. It's a deferment ministry. Much like John the Baptist in, in John chapter 3. He'd say, it's not me. I must decrease. I must become less. It's all about him. I'm pointing to another. The Spirit, in a, in a lot of ways, is similar to the ministry of John the Baptist. And so as we think about the Holy Spirit and his work and his ministry, if we are overly concerned with him and the effects of his ministry and him and what he does, we miss the fundamental purpose of him and his work. He never wants someone to be overly concerned with him. That's not why he came. J.I. Packer is, is really, really clear and concise and helpful 
in, in this regard. So, so listen to how he puts it. He, he gives a great analogy, a great picture that I hope will stick with you. He writes, quote, The Holy Spirit's distinctive new covenant role is to fulfill what we may call a floodlight ministry in relation to the Lord Jesus. Pecker continues, when floodlighting is done well, now maybe you know what floodlighting is. I had to kind of think through it and, and, and make sure I understood, but, but, but hopefully you know. So Pecker continues, when floodlighting is done well, the floodlights are so placed that you do not see them. You are not, in fact, supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you are meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not be seen for the darkness and to maximize its dignity, that is the dignity of the building, by throwing all of its details into relief so that you see it properly. And then Packer says, this floodlighting ministry, or floodlighting, perfectly illustrates the Spirit's new covenant role. He is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining on the Savior. The Spirit's primary purpose is Christ-focused, Christ-centered. He is casting the light on Christ. The Spirit is never Spirit-centered. He is always Christ-centered. Packer closes this paragraph of his with these words. The Spirit's message to us is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me. That's not ever the Spirit's message, but always the Spirit's message is, look to him and see his glory. Listen to him and hear his word. Go to him and have life. Get to know him and taste his gift and joy of peace. The Spirit's primary purpose has everything to do with the person and work of Christ. That's why Jesus sent the Spirit. The primary purpose of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Christ. And he does so, look at the second part of that verse 14. He does so by continuing the ministry of Jesus. Verse 14, he will glorify me for... Here's how he's going to do it. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so Jesus is saying the Spirit glorifies him by taking what is his and declaring it to the disciples. Another way of putting it, the Spirit is going to teach the disciples what Jesus had been teaching them. He's going to continue the ministry of Jesus. In fact, one author defines the primary purpose of the Spirit as mediating Christ's presence to the believer. By mediating, by being the, the, the continued presence of Christ in the life of his people. My point simply being the ministry of the Spirit cannot ever be separated from the ministry of Christ. The Spirit is not, as Jesus says in verse 13, speaking on his own authority. In fact, earlier in this, in this, in this discourse in, in John's gospel... Earlier in, verse four, or in chapter 14, in fact, chapter 14 has, has similar or overlapping themes where Jesus is, is talking about the coming of the other helper, the Spirit. And in verses 25 and 26 of John chapter 14, listen to what Jesus says. It's really similar and I think helps us confirm that what, what he's saying here in, in verse 7 He says in, in John 14, 25 and 26, These things I've spoken to you while I am with you. Jesus talking to his disciples again. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, listen to what he's going to do. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. 
And so the Spirit, in, in this context, the Helper, is going to teach the disciples all the things that Jesus taught. Uh, similar, I think the same idea, same principle, as guide you into all the truth, as he says here in chapter 16. He's going to bring to remembrance all that I've said. Again, this is the Spirit's Christocentric ministry. It's connected to the ministry of Jesus. He takes what is Christ's and declares it to the disciples. And so the Spirit's primary way that he glorifies Christ is by teaching and reminding of all that Christ did and all that he was. And so the main point of the message this morning, if you remember nothing else, remember this, if you're being distracted by your kids or your phone or something else, focus for a second. Here's the main point. The role of the Holy Spirit in the church and in the world and in your life and in the life of the first disciples is to glorify Christ. He has a floodlight ministry. He will glorify me, Jesus said, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He will continue my ministry, and by doing so, he will glorify me. So if you're going to remember one thing, that's it. Remember that. But hopefully, you, you know, I want you to remember more than that, so I'm going to keep going. We're going to look, secondly, at verses 12 through 13. We're going to, we're going to back up in the passage and look at the things to come. So look there. Verse 12 and 13. Verse 12, Jesus says, now this again, this is before the verse we just read. Then in verse 12, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And so as Jesus begins this section of this discourse, the logic seems to be as follows. As he's talking with his disciples in the upper room, there's still some really important things that are going to happen, specifically as it relates to his, his crucifixion and his burial, his resurrection, and, and then eventually his ascension. But in that upper room, as Jesus is talking to them, like in, like in other instances in, in, throughout his ministry, they cannot bear those things now. If Jesus were to explain the specifics and fill in the gaps of all that was meant by his death and resurrection and ascension, right, they would be lost. They wouldn't get it. And so Jesus says, you can't bear it at this time. Not to mention, these things hadn't happened yet. However, Jesus says, this is not always going to be the case. There's going to be a time to, that's coming where you can, can bear it. And that's going to be the day when the spirit of truth comes. And so I think Jesus' logic here is the spirit of truth is going is to tell you the things that you can't bear now. And down in verse 15, he mentions it as the things that are to come, or, or 13, the things that are to come. So I think in verse 12 and at the end of the verse 13, the things they can't bear and the things that are to come, I think that's the, those are the same things. And so what are the things to come I just mentioned the connection between verses 12 and 13. I think that what Jesus is talking about in verse 12, when he says that he has many things to tell them they cannot bear, and the things to come in verse 13 are the same things, and the things to come in this context, I don't think refer to, to futuristic, in-time, eschatological things. I don't think he's saying things to come as in, as in the last days. I don't think that's his point here. Instead, I think the things to come is from the point of reference of them up there in the upper room. And things to come from the time they leave the upper room until the spirit of truth comes, are the things to come. So, so the things, the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, the, the completion of his work. 
And so in the upper room, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the day when it comes, when he ascends back into heaven. Because on that day, all these things will have happened. The work of Christ will be complete and the spirit will be sent to glorify Jesus. And he will do so by reminding them of everything that Jesus said and by telling them, get this, all the specifics of what the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension actually mean. And this is exactly what we see happen between the ascension of Christ and the sending of the Spirit. And, and so it's like, it's like it, for example, the, the timing here, the things to come, it's not things that are, that are yet to come in the future. It's things to come from that point on. And so an example would be if, if I say, hey, when, when we're watching a movie, sometimes our, our kids, one, one daughter who's five, year old, five, year, five years old, she is the, the most prominent ask her of this question. We're watching a show or a movie, and she says, hey, uh, what does this mean? Or, or what's going to happen? Or, or daddy, who is that? Or what does that mean? And when I say, just, just watch. And so as it unfolds, right, it kind of reveals it. Well, Jesus is saying the things that are to come, so disciples, there's going to be things that are happening. You, you're not going to get them. But after they happen, the Spirit's going to come and explain to you everything that happened that you don't understand now. And so the things that, that are to come are just from the point there in the upper room. Hopefully that's clear. But when, when Jesus is a, ascends into heaven, right? remember what, what the disciples were like? They're locked up in an upper room in Jerusalem. They're waiting. Jesus said, wait. They're not bold. They're not zealous. They're probably afraid. They're probably confused, probably nervous, are we next? Are the Romans coming for us? I mean, sure, they'd seen the resurrected Christ. They didn't doubt that he was alive, but they did doubt what they were supposed to do. They didn't know what they were supposed to say because Jesus said, hey, just go wait. And so they're waiting. And they're probably anxious or nervous. And they continue in that state until, until the sending of the Spirit. Once the Spirit of truth comes at Pentecost... You can read this in Acts 1 and 2, but, but specifically in Acts 2, when the Spirit comes, Peter stands up and he says, let it be known to you. Listen, give ear to what I'm about to say. And then he goes on to explain with, with great boldness and confidence all of the specifics in regards to the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. And so he says, this is what has happened. And there's a boldness that now he can accurately portray all that has happened in the, the, the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. And I'm saying that that boldness, this, this understanding, this clarity with which Peter and the, the disciples throughout the book of Acts can, can refer to Jesus and his work and his ministry is the direct, direct result of the spirit of truth coming and declaring to the disciples the things that they could not bear in the upper room prior to the events of the Passion. And so I think the book of Acts, beginning, middle, and end, shows the process of the spirit of truth guiding the early church into all the truth, just as Jesus had promised. And so what does he mean? Next question, all the truth. What, what is all the truth that the spirit is going to guide his disciples into? Now, this is why context is always key when, when, when studying scriptures. That's why we started in verse 14, because verse 14 tells us that the disclosure of the Spirit will not be anything that is utterly unique. And so all the truth here 
is very specific. All the truth, Jesus says. The Spirit's going to guide you into all truth. The Spirit of truth is going to guide you in all the truth. It's not a general or an undefined or an abstract truth. Truth here, the truth that the Spirit is going to guide us into is the truth that cannot be separated from Christ himself. Christ is the truth. And so the Spirit's ministry is to guide into the truth, which which cannot be separate from Jesus himself. In fact, John chapter 1. Grace and truth have come through this word that was sent by the Father. Or, or in, earlier in John's gospel, Jesus is the one who has shown us the glory of the Father. And has said, he's not only the way and not only the life, but he is the truth. And so when Jesus tells his disciples that the spirit of truth will guide them in all the truth... He's not saying that you're, there's going to be some additional truth that, that the Spirit is going to reveal to you that, that I know nothing about, that I, that I have nothing to do with. That's not what he's saying. It's not a, an additional category. The disciples knew Christ, so they knew the truth. They knew that Jesus was this culminating self-disclosure of God, the culmination of God's self-revelation. And the disciples knew that they're not going to go past him. They're not going to go beyond Christ. Truth doesn't go beyond Christ. Christ is the final revelation of God to people. And so the Spirit wasn't going to come and guide in another truth or in a new truth or in a novel truth. The Spirit was going to glorify Jesus by taking what Jesus had said and reminding them what he had said and then by filling in the gaps, by clarifying all that had happened between the upper room discourse and the ascension. By revealing and making clear what they couldn't bear then and there, he was going to come and make clear to them. He's going to guide them into all the truth. When the Spirit of truth came, he's going to lead the disciples into all the truth, which one commentator explains as the implications. He's going to guide them in all the implications of the truth, the revelation that is intrinsically bound up with Jesus Christ. He's going to glorify Jesus by taking what was his and declaring it to The disciples, do you see this relationship between Christ and the Spirit? The Spirit does not come as the third person of the Trinity to add substance to the content of the revelation of God. Jesus as the Son had already come and He had revealed the Father. He had revealed God to mankind. He had spoken. God had spoken through the Son. This is Hebrews 1. Right? He has spoken to us by His Son. This is a clear revelation from God to us. There's no need for anything new or substantially different from what Jesus had said and taught and done. And so the Spirit is not given. Listen, the Holy Spirit is not given for additional chapters in the volume of divine revelation. There are no chapters after Jesus. He is it. El Fien. There's not another chapter coming from Muhammad or Joseph Smith or Reverend Moon. Jesus is the end. And the Spirit comes to glorify Jesus as the final revelation from God the Father and fill in the gaps. This is who he was. End of story. Jesus is the end. We don't need further revelation from, from cult leaders or even from those who are, who are so over, overwhelmed with, with or, or overly interested in the Spirit and say, listen to what the Holy Spirit told me. We don't need that. We got it already. The Spirit's ministry is not new revelation. It is directly related to the person and work of Christ. 
The Spirit comes and glorifies the revelation that's been made in the Son. He glorifies the Son. He shines the floodlight on the person and work of Jesus. That's, that's what the Spirit does. He, he gives a more, more profound, penetrating view into the content of Revelation, but, but it is not new revelation. The Spirit's ministry is directly tied to the person and work of Christ. The Spirit is sent to glorify the Son, which leads us now to our final section. The Father, Son, and Spirit there in verse 15. Notice here, this is fascinating. This is Trinitarian relationships on display in these verses. So verse 15, well before verse 15, up in verse 13, Jesus says the Spirit is not going to speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. So, 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 so he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna do, he's going to reveal, he's going to speak in accord with what he's received. And that the Spirit is going to glorify Jesus by taking what is Jesus's and declaring it to them. So he's going to hear what he receives from Jesus is what he's going to declare to them. Right? So, so that's the process. Right? That's what we've walked through already. The Spirit glorifies the Son. But verse 15, notice the exclamation. Excla- explanation of verse 15. All that the Father has is mine. So in verse 14, Jesus says, the Spirit's going to glorify me by taking what is mine and declaring it to you. Well, verse 15, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. So what, what's he doing here? What's Jesus saying here? What's, what are the relationships he's wanting us to get? The content, now, now stick with me, the content of what Jesus has revealed and taught, if you remember... Jesus does only what he receives from the Father. So, so you can write down John 5, 19. There in John chapter 5, Jesus himself says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And so the Father, let's follow me, the Father sends the Son to reveal the nature of God. And the Son does it. The Son glorifies the Father and reveals who God is. His nature is revealed by the Son. And then the Spirit comes along and reveals what the Son was sent to reveal. The point of all of this being that there's this this clear sense of continuity between the purposes and the work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. In this process, the Father sends the Son to, to make something known. And then the Son does it. And then the Spirit shows and highlights and glorifies what the Son has done. And so there's unity. The Father and the Spirit and the Son are all working in concert. And so we have within all these, with these three persons of the Trinity, this Godhead, we have this collaboration in the task of, of divine self-disclosure. All are working for the revelation of God that is seen Ultimately or climactically in the Son. And so everyone's for the Son being glorified. The Father wants the Son glorified. That's why he sends him. And the Spirit wants the Son glorified because that's, that's what he was sent to do. And so there's no conflict here between the members of the Trinity. The Spirit, by glorifying Christ, isn't slighting the Father because the Father sent the Son to reveal the Father. And so the Spirit is doing the exact furthering the ministry of the Son that the Father sent him to do. It is therefore entirely appropriate that the Spirit's ministry be designed to bring glory to the Son. D.A. Carson says, The Father himself has declared that all honor, that all should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. And the Son, for his part, 
is no less concerned to bring glory to the Father. There is remarkable unity within the persons and the work of the Trinity, the work of the triune God. It's remarkable. And the Spirit's ministry is to glorify the Son, which is why the Father sent the Son to be glorified. Glorify me, Father, is what Jesus would pray at the end of his life. So, so, so Jesus is glorified, and he seeks to glorify the Father. And so I want to close here. I want to close with, with really just one point of application. I think in the coming weeks, Lord willing, we'll, we'll have more specific applications as we see the work of the Spirit. Now, we're going to continue looking at the work of the Spirit, but, but we start here because this is the primary ministry of the Spirit. Primary ministry of the Spirit is to glorify Jesus. And so, so the one point of application, my, my one emphasis for you this week, take this with you. Think about this. The, the point of application is simply this. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look to Jesus. Gaze upon Jesus. That, that, that's what you ought to do. That's what I ought to do this week in light of this message. And here's why that's the application. If the Spirit's role is to glorify Christ, and we've been given the Spirit... We honor the Spirit and His intention and His ministry. We work in concert with Him. We facilitate His work and His ministry when we look to Jesus. That's how we do it. The Spirit wants to make Jesus look glorious, and so we ought to do all we can to help Him make, the Spirit, make Jesus look glorious. We ought to look to Christ. And here's the point. If, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you should have a heart for Christ, you should have affections for Jesus, meaning you should love Jesus. You should, you should worship him. You should honor him and treasure him and trust him. This is how a Christian relates to Jesus. We, we love him. And if you're a Christian, that should be the, the disposition of your heart. And what I want you to know is that if, you, if that is the disposition of your heart, or if you've ever in the experience of your Christian life, had, had a strange warming of your heart, if you ever had a, a tender love or, or adoration for Christ, if you've ever, upon maybe being reminded of the work of Christ on your behalf, that you hear the gospel, that, that Christ died for your sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was raised on the third day for your justification, according to the scriptures, if, if you hear that Christ died for you, that he loves you, and he was sent to save you and redeem you, if, if, you, if you hear that, or even now, if you think about Christ as, as the good shepherd who's seeking to save the lost, as, as the good shepherd who's, who's seeking to comfort the afflicted, as, as a shepherd who's seeking to encourage the downcast, if the person and work of Christ ever does or ever has generated in you a love for or a worship of Christ, that is because of the Spirit's ministry in your life. That is the Spirit taking what is Christ's and declaring it to you. Revealing to you that Jesus is who he said he was. And that Jesus did what he said he would. And you can't explain it. But that is the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's what happens if you're a Christian. The, the point of your conversion, when you are saved, when, when you put your faith in Christ, you believe that Jesus did what he said he would do, that he died on the cross to forgive you of your sins, that you needed him, that there's no other way for you to be saved or no other way for you to be redeemed, save faith in Jesus. So when you become a Christian, you believe that. 
And so in the task of evangelism, maybe you find it discouraging that, that some people just don't get it. What, what, what is it about Jesus? Why, why do you care so much about him? Maybe you're discouraged that, that people just don't know Jesus like you do. That's the reality of those who have not been given the spirit of Christ. That's because the spirit has not opened their eyes to the glories of Jesus. He hasn't taken what is Jesus and made it theirs. He hasn't opened their eyes. The problem isn't your presentation or my presentation of Christ. The problem is the lacking work of the spirit. The spirit alone can glorify Christ in the eye of a non-believer. We simply proclaim Christ in the gospel, crucified, buried, and raised. And we proclaim the gospel, we proclaim Christ, and we pray and plead with and ask God to work. We pray for the Spirit to glorify Jesus. And so if, you, if you're watching and, and you're not a Christian, let me just tell you that, that Christ, Christ is Lord. He's been given all authority and power, and he rules and reigns over this entire universe now Every inch is under his sovereign will and control, and he is worthy of your worship. You ought to worship Christ. He is worthy. He died to forgive you of your sins and to grant you eternal life, freedom from from all that would enslave you. He has shown you in his life, death, and resurrection what God is like. God God is not pleased to leave you in your sin. He sent his son to save you. And so in the person and work of Christ, you you ought to know that the Lord is kind and merciful and patient. And so I would would encourage you, I would urge you, I'd plead with you, look to Jesus now. Look to Christ. Put your faith in him. He is glorious. And I pray that the Spirit would make him as he is in your life, in your heart. And I pray that you would turn from your sin and trust the Savior. But for the Christian, here's the application for the Christian. In light of all this, as I said, the simple application is to set your gaze upon Christ. And so this week, here's my charge to you. Set aside time. Be intentional. Look at Christ. Gaze upon Christ. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Do this by by reading God's word. Do this by by reading other good books that that help you think on Christ. Do this by listening to and singing good songs that that focus on what Christ has done and who he is and his character. Do this by by getting alone by yourself and and meditating on Christ. Pull out a journal or a notebook and just just write write thoughts about Christ and who he is and, and how he's precious and beautiful and magnificent. You do this in innumerable ways. And all I'm saying is, is this week, do that. Look to Christ and trust that the Spirit will glorify him in your heart. Brother, sister, as we look at Christ, we have the guarantee that the Spirit of truth will glorify Christ in our heart and mind and life. And so as we set Christ before us continually... We can know that the Spirit has been given to us for the specific purpose of glorifying Christ. The Spirit works in order that Christ may be known and loved and trusted and honored and praised among his people. And so let us do that this week. Let me pray as we close.